become spellweavers, reavers, rogues, and men-at-arms and answer the call of adventure. Pick up your sword, your axe, your spellbook, your bow, your rulebook, and your dice, and join the forces of good in their eternal fight against vile monsters, conspiring min-maxers, horny bards, and blood-soaked murder hobos. Discover the treasure trove of role-playing games here on Rollin' Bones. My name is Ryan Howard, and I shall be your guide. Good evening, Boneheads, and welcome back to Rollin' Bones with Ryan Howard, where we are making old school young again. I'm your host and king of the Boneheads, Ryan Howard, and uh, this is going to be a great conversation this evening. I am looking forward to uh, this topic, especially in light of kind of entering the uh, the design sphere myself. Uh, we've got Ash of Creativity on the show tonight, and we are going to be talking all about the fundamentals of game design and how role-playing games over the past really 40-plus years have gotten away from those concepts. Uh, so this will be a great conversation. Before we get started, though, I want to remind everyone to like, share, and subscribe. Uh, that's the best way to let people know that we're out here doing this on Rolling Bones. Uh, I appreciate support in any way that you guys give it, uh, but this is one of the best ways to do it. Just let people know that we're we're out here doing this. Also want to remind everyone, you can find me on various social media platforms. On X and Instagram, I am at Howard underscore Ryan Gregg. YouTube is Roland Bones and Twitch is twitch.tv slash Roland Bones Ryan. And Substack is rollandbones.substack.com. Substack is the uh, place where all of my thoughts on gaming are collected. Uh, it is kind of my favorite platform right now because a lot of... A lot of people really seem to be enjoying my articles on there, for one. But also, it it's just a it's a great platform for discussion, and I, I've had a lot of good reaction to that format of article. So, uh, you know, I, I hope you guys will join me over there if you haven't already. Also, want to remind everyone that you can uh, support Rolling Bones by sporting our merchandise, which is available over on T Public. You will find the link here in chat. All right, so that is it for the uh, the shilling on my part. I want to remind everyone you can follow our guest tonight over on X at Ash of Creativity. Uh, he is one of the uh, the rabble rousers, one of the controversial voices in role playing games, but a man with a lot of very interesting and very insightful things to say. Uh, he's fast becoming one of my favorite people to talk to here on Rolling Bones. So, ladies and gentlemen. Let's give it up for Mr. James Streisand, Ash of Creativity. Welcome. How's it going, everybody? Let's see here. So we've got we've got a pretty big. We're in the green room back there talking about pretty big list of topics tonight, or mm. subtopics under the more general title that we're working with here. Talk yep. about game design. Yeah, absolutely. So, what's on your mind first? So. To begin, I think it's important to establish what a game is because you know it seems like a big place to start, but a lot of people think they know what games are but don't really. And so I'm going to put forward a definition of game. And 
I think this will be a, a good jumping off point for the uh, conversation. So to me, a game is a internal objective with a set of restrictions that are called rules that need to be followed. And so you have to pursue the objective within a set of guidelines, a set of restrictions called rules, and that is what a game is. Okay, that's a pretty good one, especially if we're talking about games that are familiar to everybody else. Like if we go back to the Ur examples of rock, paper, scissors, or if we go to more complex examples, whether it's Far Cry or D&D or Traveler or Lancer or Titanfall or something like that, we have a game to work with. There are failure states to these games. Those are pretty common. Even if you can restart your game of Skyrim or start back from a checkpoint in The Last of Us, there are still failure states past. Mm -hmm. If you continue engaging in the actions that you were prior and they go as poorly for you as the mechanics define, then you will not progress. Much yep. like choosing choosing rock and getting hit with paper every single time in a game of rock, paper, scissors. So yep. we've got an objective, which is can usually be defined individually by the game. Rock, paper, scissors, I'm going to get uh, the corresponding option that beats the other person. And hopefully maybe I get two out of three. Maybe there's a second layer to that objective. And the rules are there are three options. There are three corresponding counters, which are your only three options. Go. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, playing D&D &D wrong can be a failure state. That's a pretty good example. Uh, if you're engaged in the game in D&D &D where there's that, oh, sneaking in again. If you're engaged in the in a supposed game of D&D, &D, but you're not clearing 10 rooms in the night, you're not accomplishing objectives on the world map, you're not getting any kind of magic items or other leading trail, sorry, trailing indicators of success in the game, then realistically speaking, you're not playing D&D &D at all. The rules are to some extent, when it comes to tabletop games, are describing a game that the rules are attempting to produce. Yes between the referee and the players and any other participants involved at that table or outside of it. But that's the thing that people tend to get away from is they disagree with the objectives of the game. They disagree with the game as it's being described or, and they start using excuses for what they think a better game might look like or is more personally gratifying to them mm -hmm. and makes them look smart and creative by virtue of tearing the existing game down. And they rely on this to basically corrupt the rest of the hobby, describe games that are not games at all by taking the rules out and taking, more importantly, the objectives out. They start off with these objectives shouldn't matter. And then these rules shouldn't matter. And then your victory doesn't matter. There's no way to win and there's no right way to play. Right. Now, as kind of a, a side point to this, um, it seems to me there are a lot of different games that have similar objectives or even the same objective to, to keep it in the, uh, the realm of the sports world in both soccer and American football. The objective is to get the ball to a certain location where points are scored. However, the rules make the play of the game the process of getting that ball to a certain location on the field, it, it makes it two completely different things. So would it be fair to say that games are defined 
not necessarily by their objective. An objective is certainly essential, but games are actually defined by the restrictions you put on actions taken to reach that objective. Or the mechanics of the game, basically. Sometimes in role-playing games, it's often the reverse, to where the mechanics themselves or the actions that we're taking are people... Give me just a moment. All good. Looks like we have the usual suspects here. We've got uh, Jeffro Johnson has made an appearance. Um, we have... Uh, I always want to pronounce this name Agma. I don't think that's correct. I think Pretty it's sure It's what? Based on the... Uh, I'm back. I think it's Wigma. Wigma, or, uh, gotcha. That's, a clo- that's as close as I can get in the Irish. Uh, God of a deity of knowledge that's been present in D&D for a number of editions. I think since the beginning, actually. Weekma, there we go. Gotcha, Weekma. All right, cool. So Now I know. So yeah, going back, in tabletop role-playing games, it's often the game itself actually giving us new actions that we could not imagine our characters taking by default. If you think of any game where players are permitted to, and every D&D game goes through something like this, or every D&D player knows campaign that somebody tried to wink Fabi, um, <laughs> tried, to, try, tried to generate a campaign like this, where the players could have always just done some kind of, we're not going to have spells or spell slots or things that are written down. What the players are going to do is they're going to describe to me what their characters want to do. And this will be so much more freeing than that stupid old crusty, fancy, and restrictive spellcasting system. Mm-hmm. And what results is a, is a campaign where people either default to the D&D spells that they know already, or they don't, or they do less. They do even less than the D&D spells that they know already and improvise less because they feel like they've been informed that they're not supposed to do that. But in tabletop games, to bring it back from that tangent, tabletop games is actually the reverse where we are prompted with actions that we can and should be taken, actions that are endorsed by the system, for which there are pre-existing mechanics that are going to matter in some way to the objectives and what we're going to and what we're going to be doing on a session by session basis. So tabletop games for games writ large, there's a good definition in that the mechanics basically make the experience. In mm-hmm. tabletop games specifically, I think the mechanics make the I think the mechanics make the objective. It's one of the things that I love about modules in particular, because modules are a sellable technical manual on scenarios that declare an objective and which mechanics have been endorsed within the system, which mechanics are real because you're going to engage with them to, to achieve some predefined objective or mm-hmm. a range of predefined objectives. Yeah, and and that's a that, that's a good way to look at modules. I've I've been in creating my own modules. I've been wrestling with this notion of you know wh- where do I stand on the use of modules, and I think that's kind of the the way forward uh, for for myself at least. In what do I make my products as someone who doesn't want to. Um, doesn't want to create the uh, the five E adventure path over and over again. Right. Uh, how, I've been thinking you, about. Right. I've been thinking about playtesting recently in this context, and this might give you some additional language to think of how uh, modules can be playtested, or classes can be playtested, or games writ large. 
is I was going over the D&D, I was going over the D&D, the one D&D playtest, and going back to some of my earlier playtest reviews for Level Up A5E. And I started noticing this this weird pattern in all of the playtest material, in that at the beginning there would usually be a lot of creative ideas. Maybe towards the end there would there would also be some interesting creative ideas, but they never seemed to make it to the final product. And they would usually be isolated in their own little packets. There were stronghold rules in the one D and D playtest, and I don't think that they're going to make it into one D and D. Definitely. The reason I don't think they're going to make it into one D and D. Is because one, there's no intersection between stronghold features and the classes specifically. There's no class in one D and D that gets a stronghold at a specific level. So that's mm. one thing that indicates that's not going to happen to me. I'll explain why in a moment. And the second thing that makes me think it's not going to happen is there is no play example provided in that play test, or indeed any other, but sticking to strongholds for the moment that tells me that this is a feature that has been thought up and has been developed to be played in a session. So when I develop mechanics for wilderness exploration, I write up a little play example next to it that tells you, hey, by the way, this is how you're going to, as the referee, connect the dots between the words on the page, the mechanics themselves in play, and the questions that the player's going to ask you. Mm -hmm. So if you're rolling up this many encounters and under this weather condition and you get these results, this is a way in which you could resolve it. And once, you, once you're given that example, I think the mechanic becomes real. And if you don't have that example to begin with, it gives me personally at this point in the industry a lot of suspicion as to whether the mechanic is real. I can give you a rule set about airships and how airships can be used. And all the different ways that airships could be, or all the different ways that you could customize airships and all the different people that you put on them. But if I don't give you a play example, you can fumble around with it. You can try to make something of it. But if you don't have an example to begin with, I think a lot of people just fumble around in the dark and eventually run up against their own mental brick wall at which they decide, ah, this isn't supposed to be here at all. It's some bug. Somebody made this up. This gameplay is fake. Right. Somebody made this up to fill words on the page and increase their printing costs for some reason. It's not mm -hmm. really supposed to be part of the game. So I'm going to ignore it from now on. Right. It's it's like Matt Colville talked about in that, that stream where he was talking about Baldur's Gate 3, which is a lot better than the ultimate video he made about Baldur's Gate 3. God damn. But unfortunate for everybody involved. Yes. But that uh the the point that he made talking about mounted combat in particular, yes, there is a box in the uh 5e DMG that gives you a paragraph's worth of rules on mounted combat, but there is no other aspect of the game that encourages players to use mounted combat there's no mechanical reason to engage in it it's there to give people the illusion that it's an option but when you actually try to implement it it falls flat on its face because mechanically speaking it's not supposed to be there you know what's hilarious 
if you get a dragon in 5e or if you get a griffin or if you get any kind of intelligent creature as as very few classes can get access to not even the ranger by default but the paladin themselves can via fine steed and eventually fine greater steed a fourth uh, fourth level spell that was added in xanthar's guide to everything can get a relatively intelligent mount and it interacts with the rules in such a way that the mount gets its own turn a la the the roll to overbear in mm -hmm. AD&D first edition, which would be an example of the mechanic hooking into some kind of some some kind of incentive to make use of it in play. Right. Right. So if you're really good at if you're really good at manipulating, for instance, the weaponless combat tables in first edition AD&D, all of a sudden a lot of mechanics that seemingly don't have a lot of purpose to them like size or weight or encumbrance become a lot more valuable if your wizard is heavily encumbered and is then and then has the enlarged and happens to be strong for whatever reason and has the enlarged spell cast upon them. Well, all of a sudden now they're getting all these massive, massive benefits to pummelings, overbear attacks, and grappling mm -hmm. in such a way that the wizard can suddenly become a frontline fighter. And they're not generally supposed to be doing this. Forget about that for a moment, right? The example is pretty transient in who you're casting it on in the party and who's mm -hmm. making best use of unarmed combat. Uh, yeah. Say it's the monk, okay? Yes. Now you're experiencing something that originally you thought was useless or that you weren't aware of or you thought it was just put in there to appease some weird grognards or elite-level players. Gary was bullied into encountering these tables and dropping <laughs> them off. And if you just take them, but if the play and the players are really good at doing this, they're the only people in the hobby that have any passing ability to do this, I'm convinced at this point. If you just take the mechanics at face value and figure out what can I do with them, then you get a game out of it. Right. You have an additional option that can be used across play for players to seek success especially when their normal or preferred methods of resolution aren't necessarily working out for them. Right. Which takes us back to the rock, paper, scissors example for what do you do if I, well, I keep playing rock all the time and somebody just keeps playing paper. What can I do? Well, I can play scissors. And the moment that I play scissors, maybe he thinks twice about once I get the drop on him once, maybe he thinks twice about deploying paper. Yeah. Maybe he does it again next time because he thinks I'm bluffing for the next round. Or maybe he doesn't. Maybe he's gonna, maybe he's gonna, maybe thinks I'm bluffing and I'm gonna do rock again because I think he's bluffing. Mm -hmm. And then one, two, three, and we'll see who turned out to be correct. Right. Yeah, but that's an option. But if you were to ask most modern designers or more importantly, most referees, for instance, what happens if you were to take, what would happen? Could you make me a game in which we took an option out of rock, paper, scissors, what would you do? How would you handle that? Most referees nowadays are wannabe game designers. They consistently insist that they're the same. That's fine. We'll just go with a couple of examples here. What would you, your creative director comes to you and says, how would you do this? How would you take an option out of rock, paper, scissors? And that's your only restriction. We're just taking an option out. How are you going to do rock, paper, scissors now? How would you accomplish that? 
I mean, at this point, you're you're dealing with two options rather than three, and so it just becomes a matter of 50-50 chance at that point. That's that's one perfectly fine answer is it doesn't work. Right. And then we would talk through why, right? Mm-hmm. This is an interview question that was developed for game designers in a wonderful talk. Sweetheart, sweetheart. Uh, let's see here. A wonderful example from a GDC talk about hiring or interviewing for game designers. Yeah. Let me give you a later example. That's actually, I think, more sympathetic. His example for that, by the way, was the the twos game from Seinfeld, yep. where you would either put, you would call odds or call evens, and you would either hold up one finger or hold up two. Yeah. And so your opponent could hold up, I'm going to call odds, and Jerry is going to call evens and i can put up either one finger or two and he could pull up either one finger or two now if i put up two fingers and he puts up one then i win but if he puts up two fingers and i put up two fingers then i lose because he's got evens right so i could put up one finger and if he puts up two fingers then i we're back to odds and that's a way of playing quote rock paper scissors with only two options yeah that was the example given in the video Fantastic example. Uh, if going back to something that's a little bit more sympathetic to, to our tendencies as game designers in the context of, of tabletop games or more open world or sandbox games, we're going to do a tank encounter. Your creative director comes to you and says, we're going to do a tank. Mm-hmm. Now, the tank has to be solvable by every single play style available in the game right? The promise of the game, this open world game, is that all of your decisions will matter and can be used for the sake of progress. So if we have one encounter that's particularly difficult, it can be difficult for all play styles, Mm -hmm. and it can be more or less difficult for all play styles, but it has to be solvable by all play styles. So how do you make a tank encounter solvable for somebody who only has social ability or who is a stealth archer? So for that, you have to factor in, um, assuming that we're talking about a tank, the vehicle, if to factor in a um, a driver, someone who's operating this tank. And so in the example of a stealth archer, stealth archer might be able to hide from the tank, find an opening to where they can then climb on the tank, get to where they can see the driver, and then fire their arrow. Social situation you'd have to be able to step out in the middle of the road and say, stop, stop right there, and be able to convince the driver to stop the tank and then be able to have a conversation with the driver of that tank. Okay, that's a really good idea there. That's a really good idea because you're keying off of something that was mentioned in that design talk, which is it's not not a tank. It's two guys in a tank. Mm Mm-hmm. If it's two guys in a tank and you assume that they have to get out at some point or that you can prompt them to get out at some point or that they are in some way accessible outside of the tank and you just need to figure out a way to get to them before or after the tank is uh, is occupied, Mm. then you have a new gameplay. uh, You have a new range of gameplay options as a designer. Right. So if you're playing like a like a guerrilla warfare social kind of terrorism game is where you go to, you know, maybe you poison their, you you figure out which guys in the garrison drive the tank and you go and you go and poison their coffee. 
or you put mm. lot you put laxatives in, the, in your coffee maybe you don't have access to maybe laxatives of the level one poison and then that uh, uh, snake venom is level six or whatever but you yeah. can put some laxatives in their coffee so when they get out of the road in about six hours and and shit themselves and they're by they're desperately trying to find some leaves out there then you could steal the tank or you could kill them there right or you could do something else with them mm -hmm. black or you could do something in the tank while it's unoccupied like you know cut its brake lines or make one of the, the keys. sabotage one of the shells so that when it fires it explodes and the tank explodes then rather than ammo cook off yeah, yeah any any number of those and so that's a way of thinking of it like a designer which a lot of referees struggle with what they instead the modern dnd i shouldn't even say modern because i think this is actually most common when it comes to the osr specifically as a part of a discussion we're going to be having later tonight is that when they encounter the tank encounter and say, God, if he shoots his arrow at this, he has no way of penetrating the tank with the arrow. This sucks. This tank encounter doesn't make any sense. I don't like it. Yeah. I'm going to take it out of the game. Mm -hmm. I think it only makes sense to have encounters in which all the classes can participate. And because I've decided by fiat that this one can't participate, because I'm just so smart and I would surely figure out an example in which this, uh, if there was an opportunity for the stealth archer to kill somebody in this tank, I would know. Because I haven't thought of that and I'm certainly not going to ask anybody just to make sure that I don't get any bad opinions on how this might happen. I don't want to get tricked into giving up my good common sense. I'm going <laughs> right. to remove the tank. Mm -hmm. And this is the quality of person that we have to deal with in the tabletop RPG industry. Right. People whose common sense dictates that you can't make use of anything that the rules put forward at face value that other people will tell you they have found solutions to or have taken at face value. Their players have taken it at face value and decided that they're going to work around the restriction because they think that the restriction is actually in place to produce a different gameplay dynamic and many, maybe many different gameplay dynamics across time. They never take a step back and say, oh, I never thought of that. You're right. Let me go run a campaign like that. And then we'll see if maybe I like the solutions that the players come up to, or I think that there's still a negative aspect to this gameplay dynamic that could be improved upon. They never get there because they're not game designers. Right. And, and I think an essential part of game design, especially with role-playing games in mind, what a lot of uh, what a lot of GMs I think don't understand or don't think about is even if you, you know, and I'll be a little bit more charitable than you, let's say you are an intelligent game master and you can't figure out a way past this tank where anyone of any playstyle could, you know, participate in this battle you aren't counting on the fact that it's not just going to be one person figuring this out. You're going to have a group of people who, by the mechanics of the game, are able to strategize with each other and are able to figure out a way in which everyone can be useful in this scenario. So just saying, because I, one person, can't figure it out, it should be removed. That, you know, you're discounting an essential part of the medium in which you are playing. 
you're treating a hobby which is selected which has devolved over time to select for antisocial people lacking any kind of community or <laughs> common experience mm-hmm. with their fellow supposed hobbyists to where you can't just ask them for solutions it has to be the question is either dumb or the question has to be treated as if it shouldn't matter to begin with mm-hmm. and everybody is presented with an opportunity to say, oh, well, here's why I think that the premise of your question to begin with is fake. And I'm just going to reject it on the face of it. I'm not going to discuss it with you, but I will take the opportunity to explain uh, my 12 pages of homebrew that I wrote on this subject and my crappy blog post. <laughs> yeah. Now, kind of getting off onto a, a different subject here, when we talk about the idea of a game having an objective. You mentioned the idea of a failure state, that being players being unable to attain the objective due to their actions or due to, you know, running into a restriction within the rules. One of the things that I think people chafe against in role-playing games is this idea of a failure state. There, If I got on uh, Twitter right now and tweeted out uh there are failure states in your role-playing games there's going to be a whole bunch of people who are saying no no role-playing games don't have failure states you you can't fail at a role-playing game or you know something some kind of nonsense smokescreen about failing forward or something like that there seems to be a resistance to this idea of failure being on the table in in role-playing games Have, have you notice that experience that at all in your discussion of these uh you know concepts of game design within the rpg space a little bit a little bit i think hmm no no i think of most commonly and this could be a side effect of hanging out in osr circles but i think the most common thing that i've run across at first yeah i think the, the thing i've primarily run across actually is that failure is fine Right, you can engage in repeat failure. You don't need to inj- to adjust player behavior. There doesn't need to be an accounting for the rules in adjusting player behavior. And let's say generating people or the. <laughs> All right, I misunderstood you, Jeffro. Um, <laughs> I wasn't. I wasn't. People who who take player failure as some kind of step to eventual elite play. And I think that's that's the thing that I've run across most often. I think it's the worst part of the OSR by far is the assumption that if you will, if the players just die often enough, that they will eventually uh, get better at the game. I think that's stupid. I'm sorry. That's indefensibly dumb. I don't know what the solution is necessarily, but players will not just die often and not change their behavior, but they will, even worse, they will live by the skin of their teeth and they will experience something pretty grand to be like, whoa, we almost died in that BX game. We, we were just a couple rolls away from, from complete and total death. We must have really played that well. And in some sense, they have because they live, but in another sense, there wasn't really options in BX for them to engage with and they sort of pulled out by the virtue of luck and nothing else. And so when they run into that situation again and they die the next time, the coin flip goes poorly for them, then 
they're not going to, they're going to think it was a fluke. It was just a freak accident, or maybe somebody had one specific thing that they did that was poor and the player, the players are going to blame them or blame themselves, uh, but they're not actually going to improve their behavior. And this is the, this is the problem that people need to understand has already been identified in much better games, design games, like video games, right? Mm -hmm. Even something like, I don't know, Destiny 2, okay? You want to play competitive, any competitive multiplayer game, especially a first-person shooter, you're going to have a friend or you're going to have somebody in your, in your fire team who is going to run straight down center lane and feed a sniper like six times. They will be able, they will have eyes because they wouldn't be able to engage with the game otherwise. And they will watch that life counter, which is shared across the team that they're expending over and over and over and over again, mm -hmm. knowing that they're not just shooting themselves in the foot, metaphorically speaking, they're getting shot in the head by the, they're feeding kills to the enemy sniper. They're also ruining the experience for their entire team. And they'll do it anyway. Mm -hmm. They'll do it over and over again. They can't be stopped. You need an adjustment to their behavior in order to fix that kind of degenerate play, or you need to kick them out. Mm -hmm. And so what I run across most often in the OSRs is really the opposite problem, where people will continue engaging with failure and will just keep slamming their, their heads into it because they assume they've been trained wrong on low-level play and assume that the objectives of the game are to struggle with survival because that is the initial objective of the game, is to struggle with survival in the tutorial levels. And so if they're constantly still just a coin toss away from death, they assume that's the default and right where they should be. And that's not the default. It's not where they should be. And it leads people to rejecting other modes of play, which cannot, which cannot abide a coin toss of success or failure. The, the mechanics you're interacting with and the gradations of success, you're interacting with real gradations of success in which I lost this many of my troops, which is a little bit worse than losing this many of my troops, but I still succeeded in defending my castle, but the next time that I defend my castle, I might have a lower chance of success. If I need to defend two points next time, I have lower, uh, less troops with which to do it. I might have to choose between which of the two points I can effectively defend and scramble to come up with some solution in the meantime for how I can take care of point number two. These tabletop RPGs are supposed to evolve into a game with multiple competing objectives at once, all competing for your attention and time and resources in a game which is competing for your attention, time and resources, and for which you have a number of different resources to deploy. You have different actions and different uh, means of deploying them, and you have different quantities of resources to attribute to every individual option. Going back to the troop example, I could conquer this town with my army. I could take mm -hmm. my 20 stack of units over this way, or, I could go to this town and conquer it with my 20 stack of units. The problem is that each of those towns have 15 units apiece. So if I take my 20 stack over this way, then those guys can conquer my castle. So now I'm trying to figure out a way in which I could do both. I know that I have a, if I just do one of these, I have a 100% chance of success. And I also have on a, sep a secondary objective, a 100% chance of failure. Right. How do I even the odds in my favor? Mm -hmm. 
is supposed to be the objective of the game past level three. Yeah. And I assume too many people in BX are dying before that for DMs to figure this out. Or even if they do get past the mythical level three, they still can't. They're, they've just been trained wrong. They've been playing wrong for 40 years or they've been right. taught by people playing wrong for 40 years. So they can't make it past. And so they don't understand, for instance, uh, this is the discussion that I was referencing earlier. Taking a castle or sorry, making a castle, building a castle from scratch takes too long. <laughs> it takes a year and a half. How am I going to build if I'm playing with one to one time? Why on earth would I wait a year and a half to build a castle? One to one time is dumb. <laughs> and we could dive into that discussion in a moment, but mm. we have two opportunities for one for comments because there's a bunch of them floating up here. And two, for any questions that you might have or tangents or threads that we want to return to briefly before I dive into this one. Yeah, so the, the first question that I have is when it comes to kind of adjusting the behavior of referees in those early levels so that instead of just watching people die over and over again until they... Um, you know, and, until the odds kind of turn in their favor and they're able to survive by the skin of their teeth... How do we go from that to instructing players on how to survive and how to uh, make the right choices? I I keep thinking of the the Dark Souls model, and I don't I, I like to compare role playing games to Dark Souls because I feel like there's a lot of good overlap there. But in early on in Dark Souls, the mechanics are shown to you. They're tutorialized for you. You just have to pay attention to them and have to realize that, hey, if this is being shown to me right now, I'm probably going to have to do this in this next encounter. Otherwise, I'm going to get stomped. Your Estus flask, your little health potion thing, is by default filled and equipped. Yeah. As is your armor and weapons, or are your armor and weapons. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay, so are you asking as designers, um, as referees, or as fellow players? I would, let's start with as designers, because I do think this is an issue that starts at the design level, especially I, within I've the OSR. I've become very fond of recommending to players in the player's handbook to begin using the book as a weapon of sorts, mm -hmm. a method of physical punishment. Should the referee start diverging too far away from the what the game is supposed to be? Like, okay, uh, the rough, if you have five other players at the table, the approximate weight of this book is going to be, of those collected books, if you were to like duct tape them together, is going to be about like uh, the eight pounds or something like that. And so if you hit the referee just right, you could leave a well that they will remember at the very least until next session. <laughs> And that yeah. the result of that welt, if you tape the book correctly, you can make sure that if one of them will flap open to the instructions on specifically, you're supposed to have a sentient magic sword by level two. If you've gotten to level two and you don't have a sentient magic sword, you're no longer playing the game as it was described or designed for that matter. Right. So fix that or you can leave the table or leave the chair. You don't have to leave the table, but you have to leave the chair. 
Okay, yep. you have to let somebody better in. So that's one way that you could do it as as designers is recommend physical violence against the referee. <laughs> the other way that you could do it against designers is you can include a lot of different traps that will detonate the campaign if they don't actually engage with those mechanics, right? right. So I'm going to, if you start, if I price everything in the module such that, and I and the pricing is consistent across just the course of the game, but one of the mechanics of the game is that you're supposed to be collecting resources from exploration and the DM just kind of hand waves exploration, then that's going to detonate a small part of the module yes. in a way that doesn't work. If I tell them, hey, you need to be running six encounters in the day and they don't run six encounters in the day and they fail to do that and they just think, well, I'm just going to, I'm not going to roll for any encounters. I'm not going to do any random monstering checks. Uh, I'm not going to do any kind of like dungeon turns or anything like that. I'm just going to make a homebrew bad guy that's really cool and CR 25 and surely he's going to, oh, he got banished again. Okay. <laughs> and they're just going to have a worse game. I think, I think including those trap options, not for the players, but for the referee, so mm -hmm. that if they go off course, the game just kind of blows up in their face and they either have to do a ton of homebrewing, which the players don't care for, or they're going to have to start, they're going to have to start going back to the actual rule book and where we told them single encounters are never impressive and never deadly. They're just swingy and might make one person have a bad time, but you're just going to waste three hours doing one combat instead of where you could have done uh, six, somewhere between six and 12. Mm -hmm. and just include a bunch of trap up. You include, I told you so in the module first or in the book first, and then you include little trap options that will detonate in the referee's face if they don't obey the I told you so's because the mechanics are in there for a reason. They're supposed to behave as intended, right? The players are supposed to be collecting loot. And so if the players aren't collecting loot and they end up getting wiped in a TPK because they're supposed to have... Uh, three legend, or they're supposed to have one legendary in the party, three legendary, or at least two artifacts spread across the entire roster, and a, a player roster of like twelve to sixty people. And the let's see here, they're most parties are supposed to come with like a very rare item, and players are supposed to start with a certain number of items for this particular module, and they don't. Then they're gonna; those players get to turn their ire towards the referee especially if you've told the players in the instructions, mm -hmm. you're, this is what it's supposed to look like. You're right. supposed to have this much. By the way, be sure to ask your referee if you missed any magic items, if you've made it this far and you have none, or you don't have at least this much. That's one way you could do it as designers. Yeah. Um, as referees, the easiest way to do it is for training players is you have a lot more options, I believe, actually, where, to where you just tell players in the tutorial stage, hey, what kind of wagon, what kind of means of carrying cargo are you bringing with you? I'm not letting you out of this town because you're, you're, this is your first time playing and you don't know what's going on. Mm -hmm. You're going to tell me which of the following methods of transporting cargo you are bringing with you. And you are going to tell me which of the following NPC, uh, henchmen, hirelings, mended arms, or other NPCs you'll be bringing with you. Yeah. And these are going to be a resource for you for mitigating your failures. Right. And you can 
discuss it all you like. You could waste as much time as you like, but you're not leaving. You're not arriving at the dungeon until you tell me what. Mm -hmm. Sorry, you need to you need to fill up all of your equipment slots or all of your character slots or whatever before I let you go to the dungeon. Mm -hmm. And uh, Crafty here in chat kind of raises a good point, um, and and this kind of gets into the player side of things. Uh, it it is important for players to also know the rules and read the rules so that, um, in his example, you keep the referee honest so that the ref, so that the uh, players know when the referee is omitting things that ought to be there. Uh, like the example you gave about needing a sentient magic sword at second level, the yeah. players, if they read the rules, will know that and will be able to call the, the referee on something like that. And also, players studying the rules will make them more familiar with the options they have to mitigate their failure. So that, yes, your first session, you might not have the chance to read the rules. It's good for a referee to say, you need these resources to go to this first dungeon. But in subsequent sessions, the players will be able to take a look at the rule book and make those decisions for themselves. They don't need the GM to then impose that. Yeah. Uh, to hold their hand or, right. or something, which is a lot of resistance to the thing that people come across. Yeah. Uh, the other option for referees is to just not run low level games, right? Either, either start them off at higher levels or start them in or run a game, which doesn't have that kind of degenerate tutorial, low level play that seems to ruin every seems to give everybody's brain worms. Um, as far as the player example, I'm actually going to go with one other option. I think for players, what they should do in order to ensure that they're having a better game is to run a session in the referee's campaign. Provide a point of comparison when it comes to the quality, when it comes to the loot, what's being adhered to, what rules are being adhered to, what rules are not being adhered to, which ones are relevant to the game. Um... Mm. Then the yeah, Jeffro gets it exactly correct. If the table as a whole has an ethos of working together to get the rules right, then the group will produce new referees, ending forever DM syndrome. Exactly. It, it felt like uh, the world was just lifted off my shoulders when Barer in my server just requested, "Hey, I saw that one of your page. Can I run a one shot? I know that you've been having a rough time this week. Can I run a game in your thing? I saw that one of your patrons just gave the players a mission to do." That seems like a perfect, I would love to run something Cthulhu-esque, especially <laughs> in your campaign. Can we just drop it like right around here? I said, perfect. I got to play yeah. in one of my own set, in my own campaign for the first time. That mm -hmm. was so cool. Right, one of the other players said, I want this character to, I want to referee, but I want to ref as my character in a heist where this character acts as like the man in the chair archetype from different heist films, yeah. media games, mm -hmm. whatever. They're going to be the person, they're using Rary's telepathic bond to mm -hmm. give the players some initial information about what they're supposed to be heisting for. And then James will have some way to connect us to, to his overall campaign, which I did, which is a lot of fun. And I got to play my own campaign again. Fantastic. Yeah. Easiest way to, to ensure a common experience of quality across the table is to just run, not your own campaign, run the campaign. Run our campaign, comrade. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. And, 
And when when you create an environment where the campaign world is not just the GMs, it's the players' world as well, and you make it clear to them this is our world, your, you know, th then players start to feel that their decisions matter and start to kind of take the the process of making decisions a bit more seriously. And I feel like kind of fostering this attitude of this is our world. Your decisions matter. Uh, kind of takes away that that desire for terrorism that some players have, where they feel like, well, it doesn't matter anyway because this is just your world. So you know, why not blow it up? There's a sense of uh, common ownership there. Right, right. Let's see here. Um, I think there's like two other questions that we have here in the comments, and then we're going to jump off to the. We're going to jump off to the the culmination of all the topics that we've been talking discussing tonight. Mm. So let's see. Um, uh, Grumpy Wizard has a question here. We'll save that for the end. The uh, the question about Twitter, because uh, that's kind of a different topic altogether. Um, uh, I have a way of tying it in. Um, okay. If you want to take it now, we can go ahead and take it now. Yeah. I think that people who, these are the people, how representative of the hobby are people on Twitter, Reddit, Facebook, etc. They are the people playing at our tables. Mm -hmm. They are the people playing at our tables. Uh, much like the, oh, Twitter isn't representative of, of dating. What a stupid opinion. Uh, this is people burying their innermost thoughts where they can't at the table, but which are collectively in interacting with other people on these platforms are cementing or solidifying their bad behaviors that they might normally tamp down at the table. So if, for instance, you have somebody, if you have an entire culture of people who say, maybe Grumpy Wizards, next comment, tabletop RPGs are supposed to do what is, what is specific so the particular game and what the particular audience for the particular game wants, it's impossible to say what every game should be in later stages. That's a dumb opinion that came up from people who were not playing games and who couldn't make it past third level and could never make it out of the experience of either Meat Grinder Dungeons or Meat Grinder uh, Wilderness Travel or story gaming. Mm -hmm. Okay, that is not a real opinion. There is a scale to these games that does increase over time. That's implied not just by the setting, but explicitly stated in the rules for right. a lot of these games. Okay, yes, it is different from Lancer to AD&D. Nobody is disputing that, and that would be right. a stupid Martin Bailey to engage with. Mm -hmm. But if you're working with what is AD&D supposed to be, well, I can flip open to... I can flip open to... Uh, page 86, where Gary describes the exact expansion of scope and scale that the campaign is supposed to go through. And I can develop a campaign around that. It might develop differently from somebody else's campaign, mm -hmm. but mostly the games are going to be, assuming we're both sticking to the rules, they're actually going to be quite similar. They're going to be way more similar than they are far apart. And they're going to be way more entertaining. Two people running the rules as written will be mm -hmm. way closer to one person or uh, a hobby of people encouraging each other to right. engage with the rules as they feel like it mm -hmm. or as they think makes sense. Yeah, the, this in particular, um, 
you you hear this a lot. Well, that's not how I run D and D. Well, then you're not running D and D the way that D and D was intended to be run. This gets back to this idea that the mechanics define the game. If you want to run a game differently than run a different game with a different rule set, you mentioned the the difference between Lancer and AD&D. You can't turn Well, we AD play soccer with our hands. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, let's, let's play football underwater. Well, now you can't do that activity with other people who just play by the rules. Right. right. And maybe there's some minimum adherence to the rules past which... Uh, you don't really need to pay as much attention in order to get a group together or mm -hmm. to get some pickup games together. But the higher level you go, the more strict some of these rules do need to be yep. for, for playing at the very highest levels. Yeah, and, and RPGs seem to be very unique in that it's the only kind of gaming ecosystem where it's frowned upon to put some kind of a uh, distinction between elite play and kind of like pickup play. It th there's this tendency for people to say that you know an RPG is an RPG, whereas there's a difference between playing Overwatch with a group of your friends and playing uh, an owl game as part of a competitive team. People don't have mm -hmm. a problem with that distinction. But when you say we're playing RPGs at an elite level, people start to freak out and call you names and stuff like that. And it, it it's something that we really kind of need to do away with if we're going to actually take this medium seriously. Right. Well, they don't because they don't want to improve. They just kind of want to have an isolated table. Like you actually do need to engage in community play to some extent if you're playing video games. Yes. Right. If I'm playing Nebulous Fleet Command and I'm being too toxic or I'm constantly throwing my ships away, people are going to see my name in the chat. They're going to leave the game. That means more games close down. That means that I get to play less games. So maybe I stop playing for a while. People report mm -hmm. me. Maybe my account gets ditched. You actually need video games or a medium for which multiplayer requires an ecology and positive infrastructure for other players to engage with you which means yep. you need to not be chasing them away mm -hmm. right maybe you get a little maybe even in maybe even a first person shooter you just get a little bit less sweaty or you do something funny right you give somebody yeah. a chance to like recover their shields or something for a moment before you actually shoot them mm -hmm. Right, little funny moments like that. They just increase, if you've been on the other end of that, you know that's actually a really fun experience. You're like, oh, this is awesome. It's a little disrespectful, sure, but at the same time, I could win. I, I could get it back. I'm not going to be upset if I get it, you know, if I pull one over on this guy, if I make this guy regret giving me a second chance to live. You actually do need the ecology for that. And tabletop games are not hobbies. They're not communities. They're for people who can't cut it in a community right they have to restrict themselves to six people to participate or to function by and large or else they can't right mm -hmm. and i mean if, if we can do one thing over the next let, let's be uh you know let, let's be realistic and say the next decade i hope it's yeah. to bring the social aspect back to role-playing games so that, if nothing else, we can increase the quality of play that, that we have in, in these games.
All right. All right. That's some comments. Do you want to go, do you want to jump into the the big one for tonight? And then depending on how much time you have left, we could close off on that or we could go over more questions or stuff like that. Yeah, let's let's jump into it. Okay, so the big one, tying together all of my different examples from tonight was a discussion on the errand that uh, fortuitous, this is fantastically tying, fortuitously tying. I, I could not have prayed for something better. It was a discussion on Aaron the Pedantic today about a, a response, a blog post response to a, one to, a video on one-to-one -one time mm. by one gelatinous rube. Mm. Somebody who was very, very upset about all of the hard claims, the hard lines being drawn in that video and insisting that there was so much wrong with this video and there couldn't possibly, you couldn't possibly play these rules as written because you would run into all of these different issues that this person knew for a fact would never, would never be something that you could get around or recover from. There was no way that somebody could engage with the mechanic honestly. Mm -hmm. And so I got to look at the game and I got to say, hmm, this is weird that somebody is telling me, for instance, that you can't do stronghold play under one-to-one -one time. Maybe it works for normal adventuring, for kind of beer and pretzels, the beer and pretzels expansion into a grand campaign. But once you get to strongholds, come on, sieges take months. Uh, domain play writ large takes months. T moving armies takes a long time. If you want to, if you're getting besieged, that takes months. If you're sieging somebody else, that takes months. Building castles, building buildings writ large, that's a lot of time. How are you going to do that in a grand campaign? Forget the fact that your players don't have to engage with the, with the resolution of these things directly all at once. That's not necessarily the point. Or just leave that to the side for the moment because the, the presumption is it would be cool if my player could say, I built a castle, and then that happened at some point. And they prefer it to happen sooner rather than later. That's the core of the objection. Have you run a, Have you run into this online? Any variation of this doesn't have to be this specific example. I mean, so the biggest thing that I've run into uh, with people kind of chafing against one to one time, or just people who have implemented it incorrectly, uh, but I haven't run into uh, what kind of this article is arguing. Okay, um, just that like, okay, there's some kind of failure state or some kind of inconvenience that yep. the players, that's that's really big for the players that's supposedly going to keep them from engaging with the activity. Mm -hmm. Okay, bless your heart that you haven't had to deal with this. Uh, I, I will say most of the objections that I run into with domain play are even dumber because it boils down to people saying, well, that's boring. And I will not elaborate further. And at that point, you just can't talk to that person. I personally don't find one-to-one -one time. I personally don't find domain play interesting. That's fine. Lots of people don't find lots of game mechanics interesting. That doesn't mm -hmm. mean that they're supposed to cater to your every whim. That's the whole right. point of doing something that's based around community play is 2% of people play the Druid in 5th edition. Only 2% of people in 5th edition play the Druid. Okay, but every table turns. It's a weird class. You get it. It's a guy who turns into animals and then uh, they're a part time nature wizard. That's a little weird. I understand not everybody's cup of tea. However, 
everybody at every table loves having a druid around because they have a really interesting selection of features that, while you personally might not want to manage them, are of great benefit to you. Yeah. Right? You might personally not want to engage with weaponless combat in AD&D, but if one power gamer at the table starts hoisting Tharks off of the edge of a skiff, and now your party, because of this one insane guy at the table engaging with a forgotten subsystem, mm-hmm. has has really uh, just absolutely brilliantly produced success where you didn't expect it well now you get the fruits of his labor you get the fruits of his enjoyment of that particular subsystem not just enjoyment but mastery of that specific subsystem so and when it comes to strongholds it's the same thing not everybody wants to have a stronghold not everybody wants to have men at arms that's a feature not a bug. It's supposed to be more interesting. You idiots. It's supposed to be more interesting to people outside of your tiny, 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 infinitesimally small view of what the game could possibly be. It's just supposed to be ever so slightly bigger than that. It's supposed to provide ever so slightly more experiences than what you yourself find maximally enjoyable. I know that's difficult for the average RPG gamer to uh, to understand, especially the old gray hairs. That's really, God, that's really just, it's just really sticks in their crawl to understand that somebody might enjoy moving armies around a map, despite the fact that they don't. Boggles the mind. But if we just assume that the game already accounts for this diversity of experiences or variance in experiences, Mm -hmm. then the player who does cool things with their stronghold can make cool adventure fodder for the other players and take them along. I know that you guys aren't interested in moving armies around a map. We're not going to do that tonight. I need, I'm already moving my armies around the map. I need a magic item from this dungeon so I don't have to put my armies somewhere else. I can solve a different problem. And you guys like dungeon crawling. And I like having my army work. So we have a common goal and a common preferred experience or outcome that's going to result in everybody being happy here. That's kind of what like a a community does. Mm -hmm. Is it's not just all reduced down to not, not just... I only have one specific range of enjoyable experiences, but also everybody at this table must only have a game catered specifically to my, what I consider enjoyable. Right. How stupid. Mm -hmm. How stupid. So that's the argument that came up in Pedantic today was about, uh, it was three different, there were three different components to this discussion. One was strongholds. Takes too long to build them under one-to-one time. Obviously, of course it takes too long. Who wants to sit around for a year and a half? I mean, granted, Landy in my uh, in my campaign just finished building the uh, bunch of strongholds and upgrading the the core one, but built, also building a bunch of new strongholds, and we just passed the year mark, not the year and a half mark. Mm-hmm. How did this happen? How did they acquire? How did Landy acquire a stronghold in such a short period of time? Well, because Landy understood that it would take a really long time to get a stronghold, and it took them to build one from the ground up, Landy decided, hey, we just cleared out this one particular ruin, which was under a curse, 
It used to be a Ford. It's no longer cursed. It's in pretty good condition for its shape. And it's going to take us less than half the time to fix this baby up. We just need a source of wood. And we need a source of stone. And we've got wood next to us. And we've rescued a bunch of kids from the town next over. And they're awfully grateful to us. Maybe there's something that we could do here. Mm -hmm. Maybe there's something we could work out here. And so they repaired the ruin because obviously that would take far less time than building it from scratch. Yeah. And because they addressed the feature as a, as a feature, the friction of one-to-one -one time was a feature, not a bug. It was intended to modify their behavior. They said, okay, what is the shortcut I can use to get around this. I'm going to take somebody else's cape. Mm. Some nerd over there with a the wizard tower. That's going to be mine. Yep. And that's Easy. crafty says in chat here. Why build a stronghold when I can just take yours? Um, you, you see this. I mean, you, you see this all the time in fiction. You see this in uh, Berserk. Griffith builds up this mercenary army, marches into the kingdom, and essentially like demands a uh, you know nobility and and land from the king in pursuit of becoming a ruler himself. Uh, ultimately, uh, wanting to usurp the king that he's now trying to ingratiate himself to. Yes, Griffith could go off somewhere and find a kingdom of his own and start building it from the ground up, or he could just take someone else's. So, like you said, the, the friction is there to make people think outside the box of, I need yeah. to go out into the wilderness and build from the ground up my castle. You can go take someone's castle. You can go do something on behalf of a greater noble who is able to grant you a castle that already exists. There's all kinds of options that you can choose from here. Yeah. Yeah. Now the second portion of the discussion, this was so fascinating to me because I talk a lot about, especially recently, I talk about a lot about the success curve of RPGs and how you're supposed to, once you get past the tutorial levels, the default mode of, or sorry, the default rate of success for most players across the course of the day is 100%. You're supposed to be succeeding 100%. That's how the math works out. And referees, the gray hairs run into this. It's really unfortunate where they run into the, oh my God, my players are just wiping encounters left and right. They're not missing any attacks. They're killing things before they get a chance to get a hit in. What am I supposed to do? This isn't how we've been playing for the past um, three months. Or if you started playing in 1980, I assume you've. Uh, this isn't how we've been playing for the past 40 years. They got past level three. What am I supposed to do? Everything's ruined. We got to go back to level one. Mm-hmm. We got to go back to level one, or, or we have to continuously replicate level one just with larger numbers. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, now I'm only going to throw things at you that kill third level characters yep. instead of killing first level characters. Mm -hmm. Oh man, I fixed the problem. Everything's working. Exactly. <laughs> Everything's right back the way it was supposed to be. Yep. I'm so smart. Yep the the dragon slayer approached the problem. Yeah. So what happens is you get to this, you get past this tutorial mode, 
-hmm. and the players start succeeding things. But what you're supposed to be introducing by virtue of a bunch of factions being on the map and a bunch of patrons and important NPCs and a few wilderness encounters that are primarily there, not just to freak the players out because the players can run from them and they have a really good chance of evasion in most terrain types from avoiding even really high level monsters. Yeah. So why, why is the game spawning beholders and, and dragons all over the place? Well, they're supposed to be doing things. Maybe for other people, Maybe for themselves, but they're supposed to be doing things. Well, what mm -hmm. are they doing? They're doing their own little objectives around the map. And the players are unknowingly, and then knowingly, in competition with them. If you want that magic item that the sage asked about, you're gonna, or that this uh, quest giver informed you about, or the king said that the plus five holy avenger is in that tomb, ah, crap, somebody spotted that dragon or spotted that beholder going to that tomb. Well, now your resources are spread a little bit more thin because the wizard wants to go find the staff of power in the other tomb. And, a, and whichever, the, instead of the beholder going to the one, it's the dragon going to the other or vice versa. Well, now the party is split. They can either 100% chance succeed at this one, might be difficult, but they can slog through it and succeed at this one place and, and getting the plus five Holy Avenger, or they can definitely succeed at acquiring the staff of power. Mm -hmm. The players don't just want to succeed at one, they want to succeed at both. Yep. So they're going to come up with insane, stupid ideas and they're going to spread themselves. Well, we'll start there. They're going to come up with insane, stupid ideas that are going to introduce more chaos to the campaign and it's going to reintroduce tension back to the campaign. But the secret, the secret second part of this is that the players are also going to spread themselves too thin. And by spreading themselves too thin, things that would normally carry a 100% chance of success are going to go down a little bit, or maybe a lot. They're going to yep. bite off more than they can chew because they've gotten used to this curve going upwards. And so what the curve is instead going to do is it's going to loop instead of, uh, I don't know, but this one. Okay, so instead of instead of just going up like, Let's go with something thick. Yeah, there we go. Like that. Instead of just going slowly upwards or slowly across or something like that, it's going to go up and then it's going to loop back around. And it's going to go down for a little while. Mm -hmm. And then it's going to pick back up as the players improve. And then they're going to run into something else and go down for a little while. And then it's going to go back up as they improve from those. And then it's going to go back down for a little while. It's going to keep doing this, not just through their overall chances of success, mm -hmm. but also their modes of play. Something interesting happened today. This is, this is the real second part of the discussion. Where people said, how on earth could the players be supposed to use shortcuts to get to stronghold play if there's detailed rules for building strongholds from the ground up. How could the players possibly want or be intended to get to take a, a shortcut to the third level of the dungeon if we have detailed rules for how to make levels one and two in the dungeon? It's an interesting question. Mm-hmm. Right? Why yep. would you have all that information in there? Sorry, go ahead. I I mean, just to to like 
answer that question, I guess. Just because those things are there doesn't mean you necessarily have to interact with them. If there is a way around them, you are still solving level one and level two by finding a shortcut to level three. You're just right. doing so by different means. Right. And you're getting down to level three. You're getting to the good stuff. You're getting the good loot. You're fighting monsters that are actually challenging. Mm -hmm. And so you're engaged because they're smart and you're playing the right way. You're playing at an elite level. You're skipping content that you don't need to interact with in order to get to the good stuff. You're going to really challenge yourself. You might even overextend. You might look for a shortcut to level four to get back down there. And that's really challenging. But you've got a pretty good head on your shoulders. You're with a bunch of people that you trust in the party. You're confident that you could make this work. And you do. You succeed. You clear out level four. And it's time to go back up to the top of the dungeon for the night. But now you got to pass through level three, two, and one again. Mm -hmm. And you have way less resources with which to do that. Yep. In chasing success, you spread yourself. You got really high up there. And you spread yourself too thin. And now you're going to dip again. Now, because you don't have enough spells or hit points or potions or whatever have you, you got to start dipping into all that good loot that you got. And maybe some of it gets stolen by critters who aren't interested in fighting you, but they're very much interested in that big old sack of gold that you got sitting there. Maybe it spills across the ground, and maybe that's too much noise. That's another wandering monster check, and more stuff comes in, and the party says, oh, we got to bounce. We spread ourselves too thin. Mm -hmm. So we got to figure out a way to salvage this situation that we got ourselves into by overextending, by being too good at the game, we put ourselves in the worst position and now we got to figure out a way out of it. And they probably will. Most of them will. You might have a party member die, maybe some henchmen. Somebody needs to get resurrected. Somebody needs to get resurrected. That's not a little dip in their resources. Now they lose a little bit of that treasure that they just collected. But that party member still gets some experience or they still recover some good stuff. Maybe mm -hmm. we, he's got to do like a week's bed rest or whatever. So he brings in a different character and we chase another dungeon. And then we go back up because they start succeeding more. So why is it that there are such interesting, if claiming a stronghold or ruin from somebody else or some monsters out in the wilderness is such a better idea, is an ideal shortcut to player success, why is it that we have so many rules for how to build them from the ground up? Because the first player who goes out there and conquers a stronghold for themselves is not experienced in stronghold play. Mm -hmm. So a bunch of people are going to flock to the keep. A bunch of peasants are going to come under his wing. A bunch of people are going to be present who now trust him. He conquered the orcs. People think he's a cool guy. This is a this is the later third um, issue that we'll address down the line is whether or not people would like the guy who saved the village and killed all the orcs and took over the castle. Apparently taking over a castle that orcs were sleeping in is supposed to cast some aspersions on the adventurer who did this. I'm not personally aware of any kind of fiction or media or real world parallels or anything I could possibly imagine. Uh, maybe it's a problem with my imagination. I'm not going to be too proud about it, right? Could be mm -hmm. a new problem. 
But the general expectation is if a hero goes and slaughters a bunch of orcs that were slaughtering the villagers, the villagers tend to look up to that person. We'll get to that later. That person now has a bunch of vulnerable people all around his keep. Yeah, maybe a necromancer comes along because there's a whole bunch of dead orc bodies stacked outside the keep. And there's a bunch of potential bodies who are walking around the keep right now and haven't quite finished setting up yet. Maybe that goes poorly for the player. Maybe the introduction of a new player on the campaign map, on the faction map, is really, really disturbing to a bunch of other NPCs on the map. Mm -hmm. And so where they were fighting each other, maybe they do a truce and they start turning their gaze towards the player character and troops begin amassing on the player's border now. And he doesn't have enough troops. He might have enough troops, might have enough magic, might have enough items to deal with one of those guys' armies. Doesn't have enough for both. What's he going to do now? It's entirely possible that his, that his stronghold gets raised to the ground in this process. Or maybe he needs a second stronghold. Maybe he needs a, a nice little ring of wooden palisades out in the wilderness, out by the river juncture. Maybe he needs to start building as fast as he possibly can and finding new shortcuts for those. New fortifications along the, uh, the choke points, the natural choke points of the terrain in his domain. If they want to come by boat, they have to come up this way. So we're going to do as many wooden fortifications as we can and as many stone fortifications as we can manage building at the same time. We're going to wipe all the gold that we just got out of this orc infested stronghold. And we're going to wipe it, li literally all of it, on building as many fortifications as possible, starting with the wooden ones in front and the stone ones in the back. And yep. then those are going to grow up, assuming that the player lives and everything goes well, right? Maybe some other players are able to pull shenanigans, turn the armies against each other for a little while, pull off some assassinations or wetworks missions. Maybe one of the other players decides to take the same approach that this guy took. Player one took this uh, conquer is a shortcut. Conquering is a shortcut to uh, domain level. Maybe he player two takes that approach with one of the armies or one of the one of the castles that's up north of player mm -hmm. one and that solves a problem for player one player two solves a problem for player one yeah in any case gives him time time to build up new strongholds and new fortifications and new resources from the ground up yeah and so maybe the presence of a shortcut to get in over your head is intended to produce gameplay scenarios which will necessitate getting familiar with the base system and how everything works from the ground level or you won't be able to keep the gains you made when you got in over your head. Yep. That's the game. Mm -hmm. Is that the shortcut is supposed to take you up here and you feel really good about it? And it exposes you to new dangers. And so you go back down. Yeah. And so by learning the basics of the system or maybe having the advanced a knowledge of them, this is really elite level, having a knowledge of them in advance allows you to make better use of the shortcuts such that you only take, instead of a, a, really, instead of a really big dip, 
you take only a small dip. Mm -hmm. Or maybe you take no dip at all and you overextend even further. And then you definitely take a dip. Yes. Because uh, nobody's going to be completely ready for what's whatever's everything that's on the campaign map. You will take that dip at some point. Mm -hmm. And and that's to and if you can if you can keep kind of holding up that tablet there, uh, just so everyone can see uh, what what we very end simple up structure. With. It's like a roller coaster. You yep. go up and then there's a dip and then you come back right and there's up and then there's a dip and then up and, and, then and that's that's what I'm getting at. The, the people who are so focused on narrative, look at what uh, James has drawn for us here. By the end of this, you'll realize that you were on a roller coaster ride this whole time. And now you have, by the end of this whole experience, one hell of a story about how you gained a castle, lost it, gained it, and then built new ones to make sure that you could hold on to that. You, you now have this epic narrative that you've been chasing this whole time but you got it by engaging with the mechanics instead of trying to force it by just like, you know, taking a, a fantasy novel and having everyone act it out like you're in 10th grade reading Romeo and Juliet. Or by saying that, and that beautifully said, beautifully said, because this is, this is the structure of a narrative, whether it's hero's journey or whether it's uh, pulp fiction novels or whether it's uh, modern Marvel slop, no matter what, all of them have these peaks and valleys, every single one, hmm. all right? Everyone has like the second act down or something like that. Yeah, all of them. What instead some people do is wrapping it all the way back is they decide they know that they can't run a game like this or they, they're pretty sure that they can't run a game like this. And maybe they're correct because they're stupid people who are too proud to try anything outside of the real house. Uh, so we'll give, but we'll give them the benefit of the doubt and say, even operating under that vice, they could probably run a game of passing quality if they just mm -hmm. put their mind to it, or just maybe didn't put their mind to it, just got out of the way of the mechanics and let them progress as as they're intended. So when the players overextend up here, they freak out. They go, "Oh no, that doesn't make sense to me." When, especially when the elite level players, they they don't just overextend; they go they go way up. They do a nice little logistical curve. There's a mm -hmm. curve at the top, or actually, wait, no, I don't think that's a logistical curve. I think that's supposed to be like, more like an S. So I think it's supposed to go more like this or something. But whatever. Uh, they say, uh, uh, once we get here, that doesn't make sense to me. Mm -hmm. I don't think that the villagers would really i know that the game says it takes 15 days to make a wooden palisade and 30 days to make a palisade of stone and i know that the orc ruin is covered by trees there's trees all around there's plenty of good lumber it doesn't make sense to me maybe i say that it takes a lot of work to clear out a ruin but the players do that uh-uh they went up here I gotta tell them. I gotta tell them no. I gotta bring them back down. They gotta say, and they say, well, we want to take over this castle. They say, uh, well, it's really stinky. And if I say, all right, all right, well, we're back down here. What are we gonna do? They say, uh, well, we have a, we have, we're gonna hire a mage. We rescued a mage. We're gonna have him come back and clean this up for me. He's like, okay, um, he comes back. He does this for you. The castle's no longer stinky, but now he's really mad at you guys, and he decides he's gonna take the castle for himself. <laughs> 
players are never going to think about that one. And say, all right, well, I prepared all my spells that were going to be like useful for traps because I thought he might do this. So we're going to we're going to kill that guy now that he's done this work for him, for us, and we're going to take back the gold that we paid him to do this. And the new wizard has a new spell book. Hmm. Oh crap! Can't do that. <laughs> uh, the townspeople think you're gross because you took over an orc with. The, uh, whole, a stronghold with orcs in it. Because <laughs> they think that's the same as taking over... If you have a pristine castle, a formerly pristine castle that took some damage to it, and the players go in, and they they don't, like, bring it back to its glory days, necessarily. They're just making some repairs to the doors, some of the floors, so there's no, like, big gaping holes in them, and maybe they repair one of the turrets... I guess that's the same as inhabiting a troll cave, which is where the discussion devolved earlier today. <laughs> yep. And that if I thought that it was reasonable that the players might spend some extra work in recovering it or in restoring an orc infested castle, which by the way, generally means just clearing the orcs out. That is the extra work. They did it way back here. Mm -hmm. I know that's really difficult for DMs to understand especially if they've been playing wrong for 40 years. I get it. It's rough. But the players already fixed that problem. Okay, they did the extra work. It was here. And then the rules of the game say they could go up here and you tried it. They went back down and they're more clever than you. So they went back up and you say, eh, got to go back down here. Now you pulled out the ultimate veto, which is that actually the villagers hate you. <laughs> they think you're the real monster now because you want to, because you killed the monsters that were harassing and, and pillaging and doing uh, horrific other things mm -hmm. to their wives and children. Now, now they hate you even more. And so I have to force you to go all the way back <laughs> down here. Yeah. Because I know either because I think that either we got to play with not one to one time or we got to not do strongholds, or maybe both. Maybe the referee just doesn't like strongholds and they just nix the entire idea. Mm -hmm. We're gonna go back to our meat grinder dungeons. And that's yep. how people have been playing wrong for the past 40 years, because they suck. Yeah. They're too stupid to engage with the game that wants to give them the heights of all joy, all role-playing, all mechanics, stuff that they could never, even awesome as video games are getting, that they could never possibly experience in a video game. It just it just takes back that little bit of control that they have that they so desperately want. And so they gotta they gotta nix it. Every mm -hmm. time the players make an advancement, they they gotta nix it. Sorry, if you were to clear out the if you clear out the 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 former castle that these guys were infested in, that means that basically everybody knows about that famous battle that the Americans had. Um, with the, sorry, with the Nazis on their side versus an SS occupied castle that when the Americans cleared out that castle, everybody thought that Americans were as bad as the SS troops. <laughs> that That's just common sense. Mm -hmm. That's just common sense. <laughs> A lot of things that are weird that just so happened to align with why the players can't go too far up here. Mm -hmm. And we can never get to this lovely little loop structure where you go up and you advance beyond your means. And then you um, you run into new problems. So you have to backtrack a little bit. You have lower levels, uh, lower chances of success. And you have to backtrack to other modes of play 
that maybe you've been ignoring for a little while. Oh no, I have two armies on the horizon. I can only fight one of them. Somebody just told me that there's a dungeon with a magic item that can help me. Well, I guess we're back to dungeon crawling. That takes me, I use my earlier experience and my earlier knowledge, my earlier expertise, my system mastery to carry me back up here. And now I'm making gains on the domain map. And then, oh, I've run into another problem when it comes to summoning or spell research. Something's gone terribly wrong. Back down here. But one of my allies that I made during the uh, during the domain game, I offered to protect this wizard tower and protect it in my domain. And now I'm going to beseech him to help me out. And now we're going to go on a wilderness travel exploration so I can solve a domain level problem. Mm-hmm. And that might get me into more trouble, but more. Ba- I have new magic items now, but the magic items transported me to uh, to a foreign dimension or a foreign planet or just a foreign land. And now I got to get familiar with ship combat and underwater travel and that's going to take me down here or underwater combat and ship combat and ship travel uh that's going to take me down here i'm going to start using spells that maybe i'm not familiar with what control weather is really effective out in the open ocean it turns out it takes Mm -hmm. me back up here and now i'm back at my domain but somebody's taken it in my absence and now we're going to go back down here it's they can't do it they can't even envision it Mm -hmm. they're just such putrid, disgusting, evil, psychopathic, worthless, retarded excuses for human beings that they just can't like let this play out. They just gotta they just gotta nix it at every opportunity. Mm-hmm. And so when somebody tells me that like, uh I know that the rules say this, I know that the rules say it takes like 15 days for something like this, but actually I've decided that um restoring a fort is like the same as converting a troll cave into a, into a new castle. <laughs> That's the best they got. Mm-hmm. That's the best they got. That's the yeah. best objection. The finest minds of the OSR <laughs> could possibly come up with is, is oh, strike, reverse, ah, ah. Oh, players almost got it. You're gonna have to be quicker than that. Wait, no, it's mirrored. You're gonna have to be quicker than that. That's the best they got. Yep. I think I win. I think my style of play is going to do just fine. Yeah. I think I get it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, and until we can allow, like until people can allow the rules to do what they're designed to do until people can take their hands off the wheel and stop, you know, trying to control these aspects the hobby is just going to continue to decline in quality, and the the way oh, out the gold is piece to... costs don't make sense. How the yeah. gold make the gold doesn't make sense in Warhammer in uh, in Warhammer Total War? It's only five hundred gold to take commands of these units. Well, I think according to Warhammer Fantasy, the tabletop role playing game, I think that one gold is actually like a year's labor salary, and it's like yeah. this salary and this thing. Um, there's no possible other explanation for this. People are just bringing home millions of dollars all the time and they're not spending it. There's no way this, no way. It doesn't make any sense. doesn't make any sense. It's not like one, I'm playing a game and two, there's a lot of, I don't know. I could just throw DMG page 90 at them, but it includes too many big words for these people to read. Inflation. That's a few too many syllables for the good folks at the the good gray hairs at the OSR. Mm-hmm. Sorry. 
They saw that on a Rule 34 site once. And while they <laughs> did bookmark it, still can't pronounce the word. Mm -hmm. Sorry. Well, James, unfortunately, we are uh, kind of at the end of our time here. There, there's a, so much more to discuss on this topic, so we're going to have to come back to this at some point. And as uh, a fellow James in chat, James Cole uh, requests, uh, we need to bring you back more often as you are an entertaining guest. It's Like I said, you're one That's of awesome. my favorite people to have on the show now. So we'll Those last 40 minutes were pretty good radio. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Oh, and Gray Wizard, I'm very much looking forward to our conversation. It's going to be a lot more friendly than this, I can assure you. Uh, me just kind of talking shit on the internet with buddies. It goes a little bit differently than this. All right. Mm -hmm. The way that we behave, um, it's okay. You'll be in a safe space. I'm just going to kind of take a, a question, QA approach when we have our conversation. Um, and I invite anybody that we're talking to, we could just have a QA conversation. Just tell me, hey, I think I disagree with this. Our priors are different. I would like to talk it over with you. I'm not going, you could say up front, I'm not going to change the way I play but I would like my supposedly inferior method of play to be better. Do you have anything for me? I'm happy to discuss it, okay? Yeah. If I could talk about how to do rock, paper, scissors with two options instead of three, I'm, I got room for you in my heart, mm -hmm. all right? I'm happy to do it. Yeah. Don't take the past 40 minutes on why you're a subhuman retard who can't <laughs> be trusted to even deploy the simplest of instructions from a book and can't be trusted with the simplest of, of narrative and mechanical interactions that players naturally enjoy, that you can't be trusted not to interfere with them, don't worry about it, all right? That's off to the side. That's in a, that's in a box of hate, a Pandora's box of hate that I keep reserved for live streams like this because I'm so much more, I'm so much nicer in person. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and if you need further evidence, uh, both Crafty and I are a testament to what happens when you actually listen to what James is saying and actually have a conversation with him. Because, um, you know, a, a year ago, you and I were disagreeing on stuff and you and Crafty were actively going at each other. So, you know. Right. Real Crafty was abducted by aliens. Um, that's why he uses a different J. Jonah Jameson gif right now, actually. The, the original Crafty would have never changed that gif. Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, no, it's, it, there's a lot of fun ways to make friends. And when I'm just talking trash on the internet, that's not really. Um, there's, there's plenty of people. Like, I, 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 run, I run a Lancer game, or I was running a Lancer game. That's the furthest thing that you could get away from AD&D. It's, it's fine. We like no, at the end of the day, we're all we're all playing and stuff like that. But I do want you to get better. Yeah. Yeah. Well, guys, that's going to be it for tonight's episode of Rolling Bones. James, thank you for coming on. This was a great conversation, Always. and we will do this again uh, next week. Uh, if you guys uh, did, didn't get enough of the, uh, uh, the, the heel promos tonight from, from James, uh, I can assure you that there will be a lot more next week because uh, – man who is currently here in chat, Jeffro Johnson, will be back on Rolling Bones, and we Ooh. will still be discussing domain play. Uh, we will be discussing uh, some of Jeffro's uh, latest sessions and uh, ideas for how to make domain play work a little bit better uh, within this bro SR framework that, that 
he and so many others have been discussing. So uh, I'm looking forward to that next week. And until then, whether you rolled a one or a 20, I'm so glad that you rolled your bones with me, Ryan Howard. Go out there and make friends, everyone. And I will see you next time.